is Euroscopic, a podcast brief about what happened this week, how we got here, and where we're going. I'm William Glucroft. And this is Martin Guck. You can find this podcast and other essays at our Substack, euroscopic.substack.com. And of course, you can subscribe wherever your ears go for podcasts. Like, comment, share, you know the drill. If you like it, let us know and a friend or two of yours as well. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, August 8th, 2023. Martin, how are you doing? Doing quite well. Really enjoying this uh, winter in the middle of uh, the Berlin summer. Um, today I went out with a jacket um, for the first time in three months and... I have this strange feeling that this is the end of the warm weather in Berlin. It sometimes comes back in um, September, but I'm currently in wool socks and I was in a robe this morning. Um, and it's been like this now for about three weeks. And, I mean, <laughs> we've, I mean, so, so, the, so the weather has, I mean, you can say it sucks. I think uh, by Berlin standards, uh, it's actually pretty normal. At least th this is really bringing me back memories of when I first moved to Berlin and we just didn't really have summer. It was just cool and rainy. Uh, yeah. But in other parts of Europe, uh, it's really not looking good. Slovenia is having what its prime minister is calling uh, the worst natural disaster of its history. Major floods swept through the country. A lot of the country is underwater. I know that Germany and other surrounding countries have been sending uh, aid to them. Uh, I believe that the current figure is 550 million euros or dollars uh, in damage, which for a tiny country like Slovenia is a considerable amount of money. Reminds me of the 2021 floods here in Western Germany, uh, although a considerable number of people, more people died then. Uh, so far, it seems like, fortunately, few people have died in Slovenia. Uh, but yeah, major just, we've just been sitting in, uh, you know, while parts of Europe are burning, a lot of Central and Northern Europe has just been deluged with gale force winds and rain. I think you do. I mean, it's, it's, again, this is something that strikes me over and over again, which is we've been talking about climate change as something that would happen, you know, 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line in two generations. So, you know, worry about it, but, you know, be sensible with your concerns. But keep, uh, keep in, flying to Mallorca. It's okay. Right, exactly. I mean, well, if a sign you can no longer do it, so now it actually hits home. Your vacations, right. uh, you know, you're going to be vacationing in a frying pan. So obviously, uh, you know, now it becomes actually an issue. I think that the cost is clearly very, very high. And I think that the effects of this uh, become visible pretty much in every area of civil life, right? Energy changes like food sources actually become more scarce. You have the problem of crops essentially failing. Uh, and you begin really to see it in fluctuation in prices in supermarkets. You begin to see it obviously in transportation. You begin to see it in jobs availability. I mean, it makes, it has a direct impact in entire swaths of economic activity, which means that they have also an impact in something that interests me personally, which is a question of politics. Um, and it's still nonetheless something that it is in some sense deniable, right? This is the, the beauty of the problem uh, or the monstrosity of the problem, which is that you still can say, well, look, it's just another hot day in the summer. It's just another rainy day in the summer. It's just, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which very large patterns, like they happen to be in climate, can be actually just explained away and left outside of the realm of political decision-making. Uh, 
I think that, you know, people that probably are standing directly in front of a fire uh, in Greece or, and, and so on, I mean, um, are probably much more prone to actually ask for political solutions of some sort or other, right? Uh, you would hope, would... although in Western Germany, when those major floods came through uh, in 2021, which was the middle of a major national election campaign, right, the first election after the Merkel era, um, the people there who were most affected by those floods the polls and the and the research showed that they didn't budge one millimeter on their on, voting on patterns or their interest in climate change. The Green Party gained nothing uh, from yeah. one of Germany's worst natural disasters to happen in a election season. Goes a long way to show, I mean, the ineptitude of, of German politics. I mean, you do have a Green Party that is just absolutely uh, impossible to save from themselves. I mean, they're just they're just an absolute communicational train wreck. You mentioned a whole list of you mentioned a whole list of, you know, obvious knock on effects of climate change, um, food security, the impact on politics, energy, uh, jobs, all these things. And of course, it comes in a surprise conflict, right? Not only conflict over dwindling resources, that's sort of a no brainer that when there's less water and there's less food going around, that's going to stoke uh, conflict. But it probably comes as no surprise. You know, I read this week uh, about a study from the professors of the University of California, Berkeley, uh, that showed a direct correlation between a warming planet and conflict. Looking at conflict, I think we could look at our major stories this week, which unfortunately are very conflict-based. We're, we're looking still at Niger, developments in Niger. We're looking at the latest in Ukraine. And we're looking at the latest developments from Spain elections and political conflict. Unfortunately, not, not yet armed conflict, but we're looking at political conflict uh, and how those things are related, right? How, how actual physical armed conflict could be having knock-on effects with political conflict and of vice versa. So those are our stories today. And, it, you know, we're talking about climate and heat and how heat uh, might have an exacerbating effect on conflict, which brings us to a very hot place in the world, Niger, which we talked about last week. Uh, Martin, maybe you can bring us up to speed on what happened this week in Niger. Well, the biggest story about Niger this week is really Nigeria, strangely enough. It's neighborhood who is actually sort of the heaviest hitter of um, the block, ECOWAX, which is basically the economic block of Western African nations, 16 of them. But it's really Nigeria, one would say Senegal and Ghana, who are the bigger players. Uh, and Nigeria, it turns out, is really uh, at the center of the operation because, in fact, Nigeria has now... The rotating, uh, the rotating chairmanship of the block of ECOWAS. Uh, and so what happened is that as soon as the, the coup took place, uh, Tinubu, the, the, the president of Nigeria, essentially through ECOWAS, um, threatened uh, military action against Niger if the democratic government was not restituted. By this Sunday, this last Sunday was um, the deadline. Uh, it was really ECOWAS, the ones that uh, the bloc itself that actually issued the threat, but it is understood that it really was Tinubu uh, in Nigeria which was behind it, because actually not only he's a chair, but well, it's Nigeria which is still sort of the bigger player. Yeah, and Sunday country. came. 
it's indeed a huge country. I mean, politically, obviously, very, very heavy uh, in Africa, but extremely heavy in a much smaller, uh, in a much smaller block. And at the same time, I mean, obviously, commanding, commanding essentially over the over the the, the institution itself in the rotating chairmanship. Uh, and yeah, Sunday came and went. Um, the new military junta in Niger essentially shut down their space, uh, and then nothing happened. So it's Tuesday today and still nothing happened, other than the fact that there was massive backlash in Nigeria against Tinubu. Uh, and it is kind of understood that one of the arguments was, uh, first of all, that you cannot simply actually uh, issue a military threat where you have a democratic parliamentary system in which you actually have to go through steps. Of course, in the US, this would not apply, but in Nigeria, it does. So there was still like a hand that had to be played by legislative bodies in order to authorize an action and to authorize Nigerian troops to move across the border. Uh, there was no appetite that we saw in Nigeria for a military confrontation. So essentially, the interesting thing is that Tinu has opened I think unwittingly, probably, uh, a second front, which is the internal one in Nigeria. This actually makes the situation for Western countries uh, considerably more complicated because now they have a second potential source of conflict in a country that it is really uh, economically and politically very important because it's economically and politically really quite stable. I mean, it's 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 a very important partner in the in the geostrategic structure of Western Africa. This actually is uh, what happened this week, and I think we're obviously going to see quite a bit more. I mean, an American envoy flew into into Niger to actually try to negotiate uh, some sort of exit to the conflict. But the fact is that the junta is really not budging. Uh, and my personal sense, not that you ask me, but I'll tell you anyway, because, you know, we're friends and I offer my advice for free. Uh, I, I don't it. really have the sense that, hey, anytime, uh, I don't have the sense that the junta will actually budge. The reason why I don't think that the junta will actually budge is because, and don't quote me on this, um, but my nose is that there is a lot of Russian um, essentially buttressing underneath uh, this operation. So they're really undergirding the position of this, 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 uh, this military, military operation. Yeah, that is the big question. What is how? I mean, we know that Russian inf we know that Russian resources are there. We know the w Wagner Group is in the region in Mali and in Niger. We know that they're there. The big question is just how directly involved are Russian interests? How explicit is that? That's something that I think a lot of people are asking. I mean, which to me I hate. I hate the parallels to the Cold War because um, I don't think we are in, I, I really don't like when people talk about new Cold War. It's as if we're just trapped in the past and they can't get out of these frameworks. But it does, you know, have you know, a whiff of this kind of proxy war power plays between great powers uh, where smaller countries are just becoming uh, fodder for yeah. the larger geopolitical and geostrategic uh, uh, desires of larger of those larger powers. In fact, you have, you're talking about the pushback in Nigeria, uh, a prominent group of Muslim clerics, because uh, there are there is a prominent Muslim community in Nigeria, said, "Hey, uh, how about we don't become you know pawns to larger geopolitical forces?" Which was, of yeah. course, was an, a, a not so implicit reference to you know uh, Western powers and former colonial powers. Uh, when it comes to the case of Niger, sure. of course, that's France. Sure.
The interesting thing about Niger, and I think that this really should serve as a lesson in geostrategic constitution for current times, is that what you really need is just sort of, you know, five or six desperados with guns uh, and tanks that are willing to walk on a capital uh, in order to destabilize an entire sort of segment of energy and geo energy policy and geostrategic structures. So, I mean, just seven guys walking to the office of the president of Niger, all of a sudden has a major impact on essentially French and European energy energy uh, uh, policy, and therefore sort of obviously an effect on the economy uh, of France and Europe, because now energy becomes more expensive. That actually has a knockoff effect on governments, which see probably their opposition's position reinforced, because now they have a new foil, which is raising prices. And now what you actually have after that is the possibility of these groups, like in the case of France, it is Le Pen, who is somebody that has been for a very long time quite close, if ambiguously, to the Kremlin. But it shows you that with very little resources, you can really push massive geopolitical machines and structures. Uh, so, you know, I think that these things are placed all around us. I don't think that Nigeria was really expected, uh, sort of in this destabilization process, but I think that it is very likely that, in fact, ECOWAS does begin to move troops in the direction of Niger to try to restabilize the country, those local populations will start to see the kind of discomforts that come with war and military operations. Not only their children going to the front, but also the fact that resources in countries that are already, you know, are, are pressed for resources need to be reassigned to a war effort that nobody really seems to want. I'm just curious, what, what do you, Martin, what do you see as France's responsibility here as a former colonial power, having troops there and we're re relying on Niger, not only Niger, but relying on right. the uranium exports for its own energy needs and especially meeting its own climate targets. These are countries that do not benefit, as you point out, from sort of the extraction. But this happens to most countries, right, that are actually part of an extraction economy. They're actually providing working hands. And part of the problem, especially when you have high levels of corruption, is that the, the, the contracts for extraction are essentially done in very turbulent, very unclear, very intransparent circumstances. So I think that it's very clear that if the streets in Niger are actually, you know, calling for the Russians and demanding the expulsion of you know, the colonial French powers, uh, it has a lot to do with French presence and the way in which French presence has actually affected the politics of Niger. But I think that probably you have a stronger sense of what you, what, what you think French responsibility is here. Yeah, no, I, I don't really, I mean, I don't have a prescription for it. I just think, I just think the dynamic is very interesting that you have these, you know, what is the responsibility 50, 60 years later of a former colonial power. Uh, France, of course, among other countries, uh, want to make, want to kind of create a new deal with their former colonies, what they like to present as more equitable, more of a two-way. We are, we are not in the business of soothsaying, and we're not going to predict what's going to happen next, but what is, what do we see developing here? Is, is Nigeria going to look flat-footed and have its bluff called and nothing's going to happen? Remember, we have French and American troops in Niger. 
uh, kind of hanging out there in the background. We're talking about Niger, you know, the U.S. running drone bases out of Niger. Uh, there is a, an Islamist, a radical Islamist movement there. You know, ISIS has been out there. Uh, of course, Nigeria has its own issues with Boko Haram. Uh, kind of what's next? And, and, and if there's regional conflict, if really ICAWA steps up and does something, maybe it's not full-scale war, maybe it's, but it's some kind of intervention, how does that blow back to people outside of the region, does back here? I think that it actually, if there is really a major, you know, if there is a major confrontation in the area, or as a matter of fact, there is a completely rogue government in Niger that then refuses to talk to the Americans or to the French or to ECOWAS, it would be turned into a complete toss-up. So one of the issues is indeed not only Boko Haram, but a large swath of Boko Haram territory in Nigeria is actually now ISIS. Uh, You have, as you said, American station drone bases, which means that, you know, that would be a point of confrontation directly uh, with the government because it's very unlikely that Americans or the French, which are involved in different operations in the region, would simply say, well, good, then we're going to pack up and go home. I mean, there would have to be a run on those bases and on those military you know, positions, and that would actually change completely the nature of the game because now you would have direct attacks on American and French troops. So I think that this actually could complicate things enormously. One way to think about it, let me just offer it as, a, as an hypothesis, is that this is a way in which Russia can open another front uh, to force Americans and French to actually deploy resources away from the Ukrainian front. Of course, this is not a big enough front and not a big enough position that we know of uh, so far, but it might be a good way to actually force, you know, force the glance of these countries that had been very actively involved in the Ukrainian front uh, to another geography. If we move from a, a, what feels like at least a further away conflict or a potential conflict in Western uh, Africa to a conflict much closer to home, of course, home for us anyway, uh, that is Ukraine, the ongoing uh, war in Ukraine, which uh, is causing a lot of question marks, which brings us to, to, to this, what seems to be the counteroffensive that everyone has been talking about for months now in its, you know, full stage, uh, you know, in its fullest grandeur. Uh, and yet, uh, surprisingly, not a lot coming out of Ukraine after all this buildup and lead up to and speculation in Western media, in West and from West, uh, or from not you know Western European uh, uh, talking heads, so to speak, suddenly um, it seems to me uh, because things are not going as well for Ukraine as a lot of people had hoped, and maybe those expectations were too high, that instead of hearing uh, the bad news, we're just hearing less news. That's how it strikes me, anyway. But I think that that was the sense that, you know, come come August or September, essentially, we're gonna, all going to be invited to Crimea to sort of hang out at the beach and, and drink Ukrainian beer. Uh, and I think that this is kind of the problem with hype. I think it is really true that it created a certain amount of expectation that, that has not been realized. Um, I wonder, I mean, and if this... I don't know if this is something that is calculated, but much more than the question of of military strategy is the question of uh, political strategy. You know, I mean, Ukraine is very, very much dependent of the goodwill, not just of Western government, 
but of the Western electorates that actually have voted in and support those governments. So when you have actually populations that become fatigued with the war or feel that their expectations have been, you know, have been have been defeated, then the question is, what is that they do in relation to the support that very clearly Ukraine still absolutely needs uh, to fight this Goliath uh, on the east of the country? So, uh, you know, I think that it's clear that the conflict drags on. I think that we're back to something that we're talking about in the spring, which is, uh, you know, just a, a, a protracted conflict of attrition uh, in which there is no movement. I mean, it's just a trench war. We had actually kind of abandoned this story, right? This was discussed in the media all of the time. Right. There's, I mean, there's a number of things going on. Ukraine did set expectations very high thanks to its surprising success in its first counteroffensive last summer, where it did take back quite quickly large swaths of previously held Russian territory. So that, that you know, actually did raise expectations reasonably. You can't fault people for thinking that, hey, uh, maybe luck strikes twice or lightning yeah. strikes twice and they can do it again, especially uh, between that counteroffensive last summer and this counteroffensive this summer, uh, they've been filled up to the brim with Western military kit and quite advanced weapons and quite, uh, you know, ferocious, fearsome weapons. Um, so people thought, well, if that's what Ukraine was able to do last summer, imagine what they could do this summer with more weapons. But people forget that right. uh, for as much as we like to talk about, you know, the, the Russian military falling apart, it's come at an incredibly horrific cost to the Ukrainian military. Uh, Russia, for both sure. political yeah. and just pure resource, human hu human resource uh reasons can throw much more into the fight, regardless of how qualitative, quantitative, it can just throw more into the fight than Ukraine can. You know, for, for me, what's most worrying right now is not the, the, the explicit battlefield developments, which, as we've said, uh, we're not, neither in a position in terms of expertise nor position uh, geographically to really judge, but what's kind of happening on the, in the wings of this war uh, with this, with the grain deal, for example, with expanding uh, areas of operations into the Black Sea, you've already have Russia attacking infrastructure, food infrastructure, ports, these kinds of things. That's old hat. Right. Ukraine is, you know, came out this week saying, well, if you're going to attack uh, our ability to get food out, we're going to attack your ability to get energy out. Um, right. And saying, right. you know, Russian ports should be uh, mindful and we might go after Russian ports which again, right. you could, there's, there's the legal, ethical, you know, law of war question is one thing and whether Ukraine has the right to do that. I don't want to really want to touch on that, but there's also the practical, you know, ramifications of that, of an expansion of this war. If we bring the war into the Black Sea, if Ukraine starts attacking what is essentially civilian shipping, Russia's going to start attacking civilian shipping. Uh, and then you have a much different character to this war and a much scarier character yeah. to the war, regardless if it's justified or not in yeah, terms of yeah, Ukrainian yeah, sure. defense. That's a that's a really scary prospect if we start attacking uh, major, you know, have, you know, oil ships, you know, having oil, yeah, you know, sure. we have ecological well, catastrophes. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the spiral effect here is oh, really I think quite, that, quite terrifying. I think that just shortly there are three there are three major things to, to keep a close eye on. The first one is food. So grain movement. If that continues, then that would actually not only cause probably an escalation, but it also will cause instability, as we have already seen sort of the warnings in Africa.
The second one is the movement of Russian energy. If that were to happen, that would also have a massive effect on energy consumption price in other parts of the world, and that would be further destabilization. And the third point is the one you make, which is that now the war form has begun to change, not only because the Russians had been attacking essentially civilian vessels as they have, like the movement of Ukraine and so on, but also because the Ukrainians, do not forget, are going into Russia. They had been attacking with drones targets in Russia. It could really become something quite different and quite more, more frightening. A quick wrap of an old story that is still developing, which is elections in Spain. And Martin, you Indeed. are sort of the, the, you know about that. So let's give a, give us a quick wrap of what is the latest we need to know about Spanish elections. Well, I've just been following it because it keeps getting crazier every couple of days. So what happened is that the PP, the center right party, which is actually in cahoots, as they say, with the far right, they accepted they would bring the far right into government does not have enough numbers to form government unless they can actually get another or a few other smaller parties into the mix. They went to the Basque Nationalists, which is sort of a center-right party, which had already said that they would not go with the PP into government if the PP were to bring in the far right. So the PP people essentially sent uh, sent a, a message or approached them again saying to please reconsider um, coming into government with Vox. And of course, the PNV, the, the Nationalist Basque Party, uh, said, no, we are not reconsidering it. We're not opening. We're not changing the democratic game. We're not bringing the far right into government. Uh, to this, you have to add the fact that the Catalonians, most of them actually who are uh, processed or are in jail or are in exile, uh, are now divided into camps. The government has offered some sort of, has signaled that they would offer some sort of amnesty for the Catalonians that had actually pushed independence. And the people of Yunz, which are the people of Carpuigdemont who is still in exile in Brussels, uh, has have said essentially that it's not enough. Uh, so it's quite clear that the Catalonian Pokemon people are very much willing to raise the antis and uh, make more demands from the socialists in order to bring them to government. If these things were not to actually work out, then likely the country would go back into elections in December. But my bet on this uh, is that, in fact, ultimately the Catalonians will go along with it because nobody would want to see uh, the PP and Vox actually gain enough votes to take over, take over government. Yeah. And one thing I saw uh, that really comes as no surprise, but I think is always worth uh highlighting is just the amount of misinformation that was part of this campaign and what may have influenced uh, votes, the amount of social media posts that were not true, that politicians and, and, and candidates helped, helped themselves spread. Of course, there's always the question of what, you know, Russian troll farms may have been able, or chi even Chinese or anyone that has, you know, has it out for the European Union. Uh, what involvement they might have had, but forgetting who might have actually been behind this, just the amount of misinformation that Spanish NGOs, that sort of democracy watchdogs, transparency watchdogs in Spain have uncovered, which I think to push this story forward brings up a lot of concerns about what we might have to look forward to in the European parliamentary elections next year. Of course, misinformation, troll farms, these kinds of things, the, the role of social media uh, has already been uh, certainly in 2016, if not earlier, from a U.S. perspective. So it's not new 
nonetheless, it is a threat that may, that stays with us and is not going away. If not, if anything, it's getting worse. I do wonder, uh, you know, how the European Union, how Brussels is gearing up for, you know, defending against these kinds of threats, yeah. uh, which when when themselves, you know, everyone is kind of everyone always has an interest. Uh, you know, no one's really an objective observer here. You know, when we say Brussels, well, Brussels themselves are policymakers and are up for election. Uh, in sure. some ways, mis misinformation, depending on whose whose team you're batting for, uh, can benefit anybody. Uh, which leads me to, to wonder, you know, who really are the watchdogger watchdogs, and who watches the watchers uh, when it comes to you know transparent, uh, accurate information about candidates, about policies, and and so forth, and what this means for European elections in 2024. I mean, you have really a massive problem across Europe, uh, and you have had it at least for the last six, seven years. In Europe, Brussels studies, but also Europe capitals are absolutely incompetent and capable of actually meeting any sort of solution. I mean, this is essentially the, you know, Cambridge Analytica paradigm, uh, and you can see it sort of deep in the Brexit process. You can see it in the FDA emergence, in Le Pen's last, uh, um, in Le Pen's last uh, election. I mean, Salvini, he had, he, you know, it was called the beast, his digital operation, and it was to a very large degree a very organized campaign of misinformation. Um, one of the major problems you have is that essentially you have no serious enforcement of control of either uh, campaign financing or campaign content in digital media. So, you know, you can actually have with very little money people sending a lot of messages uh, to particular profiles to actually tip elections at county level if you're in America uh, you would know what that means, uh, is um, it's something that requires really very, very little resources. And because the European Union continues to be essentially caught into the idea that, you know, Facebook and Twitter, whatever we call it now, and TikTok, these are essentially games that people play, uh, there is still a very, very serious lack of control on these two issues, which is messaging and finances. So yeah. Spain is actually the most recent example of this. I think that the European elections are going to be the big test because there are a lot of far-right, Russian-friendly operators that are gearing up to use these resources in order to push themselves over the top and establish themselves as European, as a European, as a Brussels power, as a Brussels bloc, which as of right now, we don't really have. Right, the dominant parties are still essentially mainstream parties. Right, and some of this is you know, this could change. Some of this is surreptitious and overt, but some of this is very or covert, I should say. And some of this is very overt. I mean, the alternative for Germany, the alternative for Deutschland, AfD, the far right party in Germany, just wrapped up their uh, last weekend. Wrapped up their their party conference where they came out with their European platform. It's, oh, I find it always ironic when. Eurosceptic parties have uh, European platforms. It's a bit of a contradiction in terms, yes. nonetheless. They wanted, they ha had this compromise between their more radical uh, parts of the party that want to do away with the European Union entirely, and those that don't. Uh, they came up with this compromise saying, well, let's reform the European Union. Uh, their vision of, you know, vote for us uh, in the European elections next year. We will reform the European Union to create this this, I guess, this uber Vaterland, right? Uh, a, yeah. a, 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 a federation, a very interesting word here, federation of, of fatherlands, which of course has, you know, racist, xenophobic, nativist 
undertones, but what I right. which which is part for the course for a party like the AFD. But what I find interesting is actually, in a way, that would give the European Community more power. Right now, the, one of the biggest problems of the EU is that it's a confederation, not a federation. And anyone who knows American right. history know, knows that a confederation doesn't really work um, because it doesn't allow it, it allows almost no centralized power, and it allows the the, the sums of or the right. parts of the sum to fight and bicker among themselves among their own interests, whereas a federation right. still allows certain amounts of power at the local at the local level or at the sub national level or in this case a supra national level, but at least gives some power to a central authority. I mean, I think that this is consistent with something that we're seeing across the board from the far right, which is the Brexit failure. I mean, and it's a miserable failure. Uh, because it probably not only has been a failure for the economy and so on, but it has been such that has deprived a lot of the Brexit voters from Brexit-associated parties. So I think that most people on the far right in Europe understand that taking that road could mean an end to their party associations, because if they actually do fail, they have massive economic impact, let's say, of a Hungarian exit from Europe, then you would actually also have a major impact on your power base. But I think that what all these parties have also realized is that Europe is already a massive tool for global power and for political power. So better than destroy it, I think that the new game is really trying to capture it. And this is why, you know, the emergence of Vox in Spain, the emergence of, you know, the far right in Italy, I mean, in this mix of Fratelli Italia, Salvini's Lega, I mean, and, and you know, um, center-right kind of Berlusconi or Berlusconi things, this could ultimately, with enough of the type of campaign that we have seen digitally pushing sort of disenfranchisement and, and disaffection, is something that could really produce next year a far-right populist type of bloc inside Brussels uh, with a lot of power to boot, because if these governments actually become national, if these parties become national governments, they would also have access to the commission. So we could be looking next year in 2024 to a European election, which is extremely consequential in a way that we have not seen in many, many generations. That's probably about for just about for all we have time today. We should maybe quickly talk about what comes next week. What do you think we have ahead? Well, the scramble for power is a very interesting phrasing. I think a very good phrasing that you said about, you know, let's not let's not destroy it. Let's take the power for ourselves. And while the far right seems ascendant in many parts of the European Union, at least in Germany, the left seems to be completely dead. That's something that I want to be watching. Uh, you have people leaving the, 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 the Die Linke, the left party in Germany, left and right. We're, we know about Sandra Weinknecht and her interesting ideas. She's gone from the far left, seeming to the far right. Um, and, of course, the left in Germany, it's, it's, it's amazing uh, for a country that part of it used to be communist, uh, how, how far the far left has fallen. In fact, they might they, they barely held on to any seats in the Bundestag in the last election. And if the party continues to disintegrate, it might be completely kicked out of the Bundestag, the German parliament, uh, which is just an amazing turn of events. And, 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 and to me, it's something I think deserves a lot of exploration, how especially these days, the far right and the far left was actually a great number of overlap in terms of 
the kinds of people that support those parties and why they support those parties, feelings of disenfranchisement, feelings that centrism in the sense of a 1990s era liberalism has failed them, that they've been left behind. So there's a lot of overlap in the sympathies and support for far right and far left. You know, the far right has been far more uh, effective at uh, grabbing those voters, while the far left, at least in Germany, seems to be disintegrating. And its potential further disintegration is something I'd like to keep a look at and what that means at the European level going into European elections next year. For the week ahead, my plan is to actually watch very closely, and I'm sure you didn't expect this, but the Netherlands, uh, because Rutte, who has now essentially seen his government collapse, uh, still holds in his hand quite a bit of uh, political power around Europe. He was the one that actually went on two dates with Giorgia Meloni to Tunisia to negotiate the, the essentially the the migration plan uh, reproducing the Libyan project and the Turkish project that would outsource, uh, you know, all repression, concentration of migrants uh, and uh, mistreatment at the border. Instead of having to do it on European territory, it can be done by the Tunisians on Tunisian territory. Uh, he also has actually quite an important hand in different uh, green initiatives around Europe economic and financial stability uh, rules for European countries and so on and so forth. Plus, he was one of the main opposition you know, figures uh, with the Austrians for um, the expansion of the European Union to the East. So this is a figure that actually... Um, has played in the background quite an important role. And, you know, as he becomes a bit of a lame duck uh, and Holland becomes a bit of a toss-up, uh, it's probably worth keeping an eye on what, what is coming. Other than that, uh, yeah, I'm hoping just to, uh, you know, have a lot of mate and finish reading Treasure Island, uh, which, if you haven't, you absolutely should. And I'll be uh, hoping that summer comes back and that... Uh... We don't see more instances like we saw in Reutlingen, a small town in Baden-Württemberg, southern Germany, which saw so much hail, uh, it actually created about 30 centimeters or 11, 12 inches, 10 to 12 inches of what looked like snow. It was actually hail that had piled up uh, in the town. They had to call it the snow plows in August. Yeah. Uh, so let's hope that uh, I'm, I'm going to hope for, for that to be the past and looking ahead this week maybe a return to summer. You've been listening to the Euroscopic Podcast Brief with me, William Glucroft, and Martin Gack. Written by us, produced by us, and edited by Martin. You can find lots more content at euroscopic.substack.com, on YouTube at Euroscopic, Instagram at Euroscopic, and at your favorite podcast platform. If you like us, follow us, subscribe to us, like us, rate us, and share us with a friend. We'd love it if you did, and we'd love to see you around. We'll have lots more for you coming up. Thanks for listening.